Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. LRT knocks COVID-19 out of the lead news story. And that's a good thing. Does anybody know what Line 5 is and why people are so upset? China once had a problem of overpopulation. Now there's not enough. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Wow. Breaking news. We have to rewrite the intro on the fly. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The Prime Minister is making an announcement about the LRT and the hammer right now. Yeehaw! Will I have to wear a mask when it opens? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Wow, there you have it. Once again, my headphones are all, I can't even, can you hit, there we go. Yeah, wow, isn't that incredible? Uh, I'm sitting here watching the Prime Minister just literally moments ago uh, giving his, uh, well, he says basically the same thing every day. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, he started making these announcements about uh, Toronto Transit and such, and we got word from... uh, uh, global Stratus Danraj that this was going to include uh, Hamilton and such and uh, sure enough I wrote it down uh, and they're going to I guess talk about this a little later on uh, and make more of a formal announcement but he announced four major project expansions in the Toronto area uh, and then said also for uh, the greater Toronto Hamilton area uh, Hamilton will be getting a rapid transit project uh, we're going to play you a clip right now. Uh, is this Ken Mann or is this the Prime Minister? I'm not sure. Oh, this is the Prime Minister actually uh, making the announcement earlier on today, uh, which I am talking of. We've reached a historic agreement on public transit in the Greater Toronto and Hamilton area. If you live in the GTHA, even if you're working from home right now, I don't have to tell you what traffic's like. After a busy day at work, you want to spend time with your family not hours commuting. Not only that, but heavy traffic also causes a lot of pollution. That's why we're working with Ontario to make improvements to public transit that people in the GTHA can count on. We're investing over $12 billion, including in four subway projects in the GTA and one rapid transit project in Hamilton. To begin with, We're investing in the Ontario Line project, which will bring rapid transit from Exhibition Place through downtown to the Ontario Science Centre. Anyone in Toronto can tell you that the subway is way too busy. Sometimes in rush hour, people have to wait for two or three trains to go by before they can even get on. This major investment will not only help deal with that, but also create thousands of good jobs and get gridlock traffic off the roads. The second project for the GTA is the Eglinton Crosstown West Extension. This will create a continuous rapid transit line along Eglinton Avenue between Scarborough and Mississauga, a part of the city that needs better crosstown service. Again, this will create jobs, lighten traffic, and keep air in the GTA cleaner. The third and fourth transit projects we're investing in for the GTA are the Young Street North Subway Extension, and the Scarborough Subway Extension. On Young Street North, we're extending Line 1 north to Vaughan, Markham, and Richmond Hill. If you live in the north of the city, this means cutting down your commute by almost a half an hour. 
for people in Scarborough who don't currently have good transit options, this investment will mean three more stops along Line 2. That's what this investment means for the GTA. Here's what it means for Hamilton. We're going to provide major support for rapid transit in Hamilton for a line that will go from McMaster University in the west through downtown all the way to Eastgate Centennial Park in Stony Creek. Just like the transit projects in Toronto, this will support jobs, make people's commutes better, and cut down on pollution. This $12 billion in funding means people will get where they need to go faster, all with tens of thousands fewer cars on the road daily. In that addition, is a clip from... Uh... That is a clip from uh, the news con- uh, conference, which is actually still going on in regard to vaccine rollout and such. Uh, but he threw that right in there uh, at the beginning and, uh, again, uh, I think took a lot of people by surprise. So great news uh, is that the uh, it looks like the rapid transit project in Hamilton, uh, a.k.a. the LRT, uh, is a go. Part of an announcement this morning with four other projects uh, in Toronto uh, from McMaster to Eastgate Square. Uh, looks like it is a go. We will talk about this more coming up in the one o'clock hour uh, as well. There's going to be more formal announcements made in regard to Hamilton on Thursday. So uh, great news. Uh, it looks like uh, the train is finally going to start to roll. Uh, and again, you've got to admit, great, uh, great news for all of the other transit projects uh, in the greater Toronto Hamilton area as well. It's about time we started to do plenty of mass projects and just get her done. Uh, again, we'll do more on this coming up uh, and speak with uh, former Mayor Larry Deany coming up in the one o'clock hour. And again, as more information on this becomes available, we will certainly uh, pass it along. All right, let's move on. And, you know, what's great about this, I think this is only like the second or third time uh, in 60 weeks, <laughs> 60 weeks uh, of the Scott Thompson Home Show, that something has bumped COVID-19 off of uh, the top of the show. And I believe the last time it happened, it was also uh, LRT. Uh, the first time, it's just a blur. I can't remember. I think it was Groundhog Day. I'm not, I can't remember. Uh, so anyway, so great news as far as uh, getting her done uh, once the uh, pandemic is finally behind us and uh, moving forward with some uh, great projects that will benefit uh, Southern Ontario. All right, let's talk about COVID-19. Bring in Dr. Martha Fulford, a pediatric infectious disease specialist, McMaster Children's Hospital and, and Hamilton Health Sciences, with the latest information in around uh, vaccination and such. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you for asking me. So uh, lots of chatter right now in regard to, obviously, Health Canada announcing that uh, kids as low as 12 years of age can be vaccinated uh, with the Pfizer product. The U.S. has come to the same conclusion uh, just a couple of days after uh, Canada did. But now the questions are starting to come up um, in regard to vaccinating kids. Is there hesitancy? And uh, another question is, is it time to do the kids first or should we keep going down in age groups or in hot spots the way we're currently doing it? So the, what Health Canada and the FDA have, have uh, approved or at least indicated that the Pfizer vaccine is safe in 12, the, the age group 12 to 15 and it seems to be very effective, which is not a surprise because it's effective in every other age group. The 
issue, though, of whether we should be prioritizing children over those who are at high risk, of course, is a whole different conversation. Mm-hmm. So if we, I always, after a, over a year of this, it's, it's, we get a bit overwhelmed with, with numbers and news and where we're at. And so I always think it's useful to take a step back and remember that what we are trying to do or the whole reason for a lot of what we're doing, of course, is to ensure that our hospital uh, system doesn't get overwhelmed with uh, unwell people at the same time. And COVID, of course, is uh, causes severe disease pretty much exclusively in uh, people of an older age group mm-hmm. and in adults with certain comorbidities or, or, or other medical conditions, uh, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, this, this, particularly when they're all mixed together, something we call metabolic syndrome. That's the group that's at very high risk of, of having a, a poor outcome if they get COVID. We have seen with the vaccines, even with the first dose, already a really dramatic drop in the rate of hospitalizations. Mm-hmm. We have almost no breaks in our long-term care facilities, so the vaccines are are, are very effective. And if uh, so, for me, given that what we are really hoping to do is prevent severe disease, prevent the hospitalizations, and of course prevent uh, deaths whenever possible, then our focus should still be on that group of people who are at risk for that, which which are adults. There are some younger people, uh, teenagers, who may be at high risk themselves. They may be have leukemia, they may be on chemotherapy, they may have mm-hmm. an organ transplant. So there are some children and adolescents who, who may be uh, prioritized. There are perhaps some children that live in, in multi-generational households where for some reason the grandparent couldn't be vaccinated. That could be... Uh, sure. But, so... So they're not a priority. I have no concerns about them being vaccinated, but should they be prioritized over the adults who are going to be hospitalized? No, I still think it's the adults and, and the higher age groups that are, are by far and away the priority. So it's great for this to be approved, and that will certainly help us in the future, especially hopefully by the time we get back to school uh, uh, in September. But still, there's not enough supply to do everyone at this time, so we should still be concentrating on those who need it. Really, even a question of supply. It's a question of of what we're trying to achieve, and if what we're trying to achieve is protection of the healthcare system, which is what we were trying to do, which was flatten the curve a year ago. It's why a lot of what we're doing now happened because our our hospitals and our intensive care units were becoming. Fortunately, we coped, but they were becoming very full and, and at risk of being overwhelmed. And so, children have never been at, at high risk of severe disease. And this remains true even now. It remains true with the new variants. They certainly do not need to be vaccinated in, in order for schools to be reopened because the people who are at risk of severe disease, who are the older teachers or people with comorbidities, will have already been vaccinated. So it's, so it's kind of a, a complicated situation. Mm. So can they be vaccinated? Absolutely. Are they a priority? Less so. Because that's not really the, the part of our population is at risk of severe disease. They're not at risk of requiring hospitalization any more than any other respiratory virus, and, and probably less, actually. They're at less risk from COVID than other respiratory viruses. And as long as we've pr- protected the vulnerable adults, we've actually done what we needed to do. So I agree with rolling out the vaccine a, as uh, people wish to, mm-hmm. but, but in terms of priorities, stopping restrictions, reopening schools, that's not contingent on on teenagers and children being vaccinated. That's contingent on us vaccinating those who are most vulnerable. And we are already seeing 
the impact of that. And by that, I mean we're already seeing a significant decrease in hospitalizations. Uh, obviously, uh, we're starting to see more vaccine supply come in May. That's what I was mm-hmm. referring to. Yep. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's been inconsistent up until this point, but now it looks like May is, 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 is turning out to be a good month, as will June be. With those 2 million doses just of Pfizer alone keep coming in uh, on a weekly basis this month, uh, do you see that we will have enough supply that we may even look to being vac- to vaccinating kids before September? Or again, yes, that will be an option for people for, yeah. if the supplies continue. My preference would be to ensure that we have uh, fully vaccinated. I mean, if it was up to me, but of course, it's not just up to me. But if it were up to me, I would ensure that we had fully vaccinated those who are most vulnerable to severe disease uh, and requiring hospitalization and, and, you know, worst case scenario, dying of COVID. So, so the priority would be to, to do full vaccination of the most vulnerable in our population and then uh, continue offering the vaccine to anybody else who, who I think is interested in, in receiving the vaccine. So there's an interesting uh, aspect to this as well. Uh, one dose is one thing, but the second dose, do we give what would be a second dose to an adult to a person who's 12 plus or do we make sure we get those second doses into adults before we start concentrating on 12 plus? And that's where it comes to is what is it we're trying to achieve as a society. And for me, what we're trying to achieve as a society is protect those who are vulnerable to severe disease. And that is our adults, our older adults. So I would have thought that that would be the priority is ensuring that the group of our population, our seniors and, and adults with, with some of the associated health conditions that put them at higher risk, uh, some of our essential workers who, who are at, at risk of repeated exposures, that's the group for me that should be fully, fully vaccinated right. so that we can reopen, we can resume normal activities, we can begin to, to uh, you know, basically be normal again. And then at that point, anybody who's at low risk, and by low risk, I mean very low risk of, of having any kind of an adverse outcome, absolutely, if they wish to be vaccinated, uh, I have no reservations whatsoever about, about somebody being vaccinated. But I think as a priority, what we need to do is protect those who are at the highest risk and that, that remains older adults. And that, that group, uh, I would have thought the argument would be that we, we fully vaccinate them first. Right. Uh, obviously, we know uh, the attitude around AstraZeneca. And at this point, we do not know when more AstraZeneca is scheduled to arrive. That's because of the situation around the world and such. Uh, Alberta has decided to not give out any more first doses of AstraZeneca uh, because of, you know, they don't know when the next is coming in. And then holding that, whatever is left, I think there's like 8,000 doses for them. I might be wrong there. Uh, and holding that back for the second dose for those who've already had the first shot of AstraZeneca. Your thoughts there on, on what we do for the first, uh, the second dose uh, when it looks like AZ is not coming in for the second? The, uh, so yes, I can understand why Alberta did that. There are studies actually right now uh, in the United Kingdom and that looking at mixing and matching of vaccines. Yeah. We've done this with other vaccines and I think those results will be available soon, but m- if I had to guess, which obviously I don't have the, the results of the trial yet, that actually if somebody got their first dose of AstraZeneca, they could get the AstraZeneca as their second dose, or they could actually get one of the uh, 
messenger RNA, the Pfizer, mm-hmm. the Moderna, as their second dose. And there is a precedent, actually, even for doing that with other types of vaccines, where where we use one vaccine that has one mechanism of action, then boost it with a, a different one. Mm-hmm. And so it may, ironically, because of the uh, the short supply, we may actually discover that there's a benefit to doing this. Uh, so it, the AstraZeneca is a very, very effective vaccine. I, I mean, it does have a slightly higher uh, rate of adverse effects. But in terms of, of effectiveness, it, it's very, very, very good, as, as, as good as really as Pfizer, the Moderna vaccines. Uh, and I say that based on what we're seeing from the United Kingdom. But uh, if our supplies are limited, then I suspect that we'll conserve what we've got for people who need the second dose. But more important, I, I think we would probably end up uh, doing the mixing and matching, which I don't think would be a dangerous or incorrect uh, thing to be doing at all. Uh, not much time left here, Doctor. Do we know when that research, we heard lots of people talk about this mixing and max, uh, matching um, uh, research going on. Do we know when we'll find conclusion there? I don't, but I know that the United Kingdom is looking at it actively right now, and so I would imagine imminently we'll start getting uh, preliminary results because, of course, the United Kingdom vaccinated predominantly using the AstraZeneca. All right. Uh, yeah, so, and so their yeah, their go-to vaccine. Yeah, and they, yeah, it was like sixty-nine percent of their population mm-hmm. has been uh, vaccinated with AZ. But then the odd Correct. situation is that's coming out of the UK is that they're not ordering any more. They're going to rely on uh, Pfizer, but I guess there's lots of that available at this point. There is, yes, and and I mean, I think they're all fine vaccines, and, yeah, and so yeah. some of this is based on on. You know, at what point is a rare adverse effect from a vaccine greater than the risk from the actual infection? Because yeah. the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson do have this, we think it's around 1 in 100,000 risk of, of a severe blood clot. So it's weighing the risks and benefits. Uh, but if, sure, I, I mean, I for me, they're all very good vaccines. And... Uh, if there's lots of Pfizer, then people can get the Pfizer. If there's lots of Moderna, but if it's the AstraZeneca that's available, it's a very rare adverse yeah. effect with a very effective vaccine. I got one shot of AZ, and if that's the second one they're going to give me, I'll line up. No problem here. Yeah, uh, Dr. And, Martha and Fulford. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Martha Fulford with us, pediatric infectious disease specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital and Hamilton Health Sciences. Martha, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Pleasure. Thank you, you too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. So happy to be talking about anything other than COVID-19. Although, yes, that's a stadium clap. That's bigger than the average golf clap. You know what I mean? Uh, however, this is probably just as much a contentious issue as, uh, I don't know, vaccine. <laughs> so really, are we just going from one crisis to another? All right, so I'm sitting here uh, in the home office uh, before the show, maybe 15 minutes before uh, noon, and uh, the Prime Minister is is doing his uh, his daily uh, blurb, and it's basically the same thing over and over again. You know, be good kids and, and do, do the protocol and make sure we're all rowing in the same direction. And then uh, we had heard this from Ta- uh, Travis Danraj at Global News that there's an announcement coming down in regard to uh, transit projects for transit projects in Toronto, and then a fifth will be uh, Hamilton's LRT. 
Here's what the Prime Minister had to say earlier on today. We're going to provide major support for rapid transit in Hamilton for a line that will go from McMaster University in the west through downtown all the way to Eastgate Centennial Park in Stony Creek. Just like the transit projects in Toronto, this will support jobs, make people's commutes better, and cut down on pollution. All right, there you have it. The Prime Minister earlier this morning uh, talking about the funding of four major transit projects uh, in Toronto, and obviously the fifth being uh, the LRT in Hamilton. Let's bring in Larry Deany, former mayor, city of Hamilton, and is with us now. Larry, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well, and uh, so much the better for hearing that announcement, quite frankly. Uh, you know, it's so nice just to hear and be talking about something other than LRT. I think we forgot about how divisive, or sorry, other than COVID, it seems we've forgotten how divisive LRT was at one point. This is this is great news. Well, I can hear the champagne corks popping in the mayor's <laughs> office <laughs> all the way uh, to here to, in Stony Creek. Let me tell you, um, I mean, for the when I heard that an announcement was being made, Scott. Um, I thought, okay, here we go. I, I'm sure they wouldn't be announcing uh, something negative. It's got to be positive for the city of Hamilton. But I, I did not imagine in my wildest imagination that they would fund, that is the uh, federal government and the provincial government, would fully fund an LRT line as council has determined it wanted all the way from McMaster to Eastgate Square picking up the entire, it seems, I mean, these details have to uh, still uh, be coming forth, but according to news reports, it seems like they're picking up the entire $3.4 billion capital cost. And that is like Christmas all over again. I I must admit, I I fell off my chair almost when I heard him actually mention Hamilton, and more specifically, to outline the route. Were you surprised to hear that? Totally, totally, because up until now, um, you know, even the revived discussion around LRT from the province had a truncated version ending at uh, Gage Park. Uh, And uh, it had, uh, I mean, I had, uh, uh, you know, Donna Skelly, who's an MPP on my program, my little cable program, a few weeks ago, and she said, yes, the the province is still on for a billion dollars. So from two weeks ago to today, where they've announced um, not only a billion, but it seems like a a billion seven matched by the feds would take the LRT all the way to Eastgate Square, which makes sense. It would not have made sense in any other way. So, I I mean, I did. I fell off my chair, Scott, and I'm sure that the uh, mayor, uh, who's been pushing very hard for this, um, you know, from the beginning, along with others, of course, in the community and some members of council. But Fred really um, uh, deserves a pat on the back for being a resolute uh, over these years when things seem to be going um, every which way. He just kept his head down and, and was consistent in his um, advocacy and message. And it looks as if it's going to happen. 
So how did this get here? How did we get here, Larry? Because, you know, there's been rumors floating around for weeks, months that, you know, oh, you know, this is back on the on the front burner again. This looks like, you know, after, uh, you know, it's sort of getting shoved aside, we were chatting about it again. But then everybody went silent and it was crickets. And now all of yeah. a sudden, boom, he makes this announcement today. Where's city council on this? Well, that's the that's the outstanding question, of course, um, is is what will uh, the council do? Although I think even the naysayers will be hard pressed if if indeed it, it is, as I've described, as some of the news media have described. And we haven't seen the details yet. But if it is indeed, as the prime minister has said, we're going to pay for this transit line from McMaster to Eastgate Square we in the province, even the naysayers on council are going to be hard-pressed to say no to this gift horse, let me tell you. Um, so how we got here? Well, there was radio silence um, for a period of time, other than uh, the knowledge and, and the news that, that filtered out, uh, indicating that, in fact, uh, there were discussions going on, and that was confirmed uh, by a number of sources, and, of course, um, also confirmed by the fact that the Premier and the province of Ontario put the RLRT uh, on the docket for funding, um, a request from the federal government, uh, as one of the five priorities that they had for infrastructure funding, four in Toronto and one in Hamilton. So it seems as if discussions have been happening, the right people in the right place, uh, with an investment that's in the $12 billion range, and I'm talking about the Toronto and the Hamilton. And I think it was just a package deal uh, that the uh, that the feds agreed to, I, I would guess, uh, where they went to the province and said, we're going to fund all of this if we can find a formula between the two of us that we can agree on. And it sounds to me, again, if all of the information is correct sounds to me like they found the formula um you said uh the right people in the right place this time and maybe timing is everything here uh but again city council notably absent from this discussion what does that say because at one time they were crying that they weren't hearing enough they didn't know enough that was going on but clearly they were left out well except um they were a strong part of the equation because of course it was their a designated route that um, uh, that they put on the table. And not only that, but the office, the LRT office, uh, was open and had worked. And remember, you don't just say we're going to build this from point A to point B and leave it at that. They've done the EA, the environmental assessment. Mm-hmm. All of the plans have been drawn up. This is shovel-ready project. And I think it it, you know, ticked off all the appropriate boxes that the, that the feds and the province, but the feds especially, were looking for. They were looking to um, spend uh, money on projects that were shovel-ready, that would re- reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, would improve, improve public transit, and, uh, and uh, help people, uh, you know, move from points within the city in an efficient way. And so the funding part, the all-important funding part, is on the part of the province and the feds, 
but the hard work in terms of laying this out was mm-hmm. done by council or an office that was mandated by council. So I think there's enough glory to go around. Will we accept, uh, will we hear council accept or reject this? Uh, what are their concerns moving forward? And again, we shouldn't blow that off. I mean, they do have their concerns. Uh, what are they now? What would they be? Well, I, I think the, the, you know, and, and it remains to be seen. Of course, we, we need to see in council, I'm sure, uh, has heard the, the 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 large picture announcement and will want to dig into some of the details of of what this means and that's an appropriate thing for them to do uh but the the biggest hurdle has been overcome the funding the capital funding has been overcome uh from the beginning council said that uh uh you know it would uh, i think i'm remembering this correctly but it would it would shoulder the operating costs uh, and that still needs to be determined. Uh, but, but I think that right now, council, uh, at least I'm hoping, I don't, of course, I haven't spoken to anybody at this point, and we'll have to wait to see A, the announcement and then the reactions. But I think the emphasis from council now is going to be on implementation. Um, they're going to want to know, uh, which I's have been dotted, which T's crossed. But right now, it's how do we implement this? And and let's hope that we don't get into uh, a situation where people uh, start, you know, going off on tangents. We've got a viable project that's been approved by council in terms of the route. Uh, we've got funding that's being given by the federal government and the provincial government. Uh, and now let's just get it done. And that'll be up to council to do. So it looks like the discussion of what the billion dollars that was sitting there in Ontario coffers for Hamilton to use in whatever way it, it saw fit as far as, as transportation. Some were talking about rap, uh, rapid bus, uh, or, or other versions, other versions of that, other projects. Is, is this now done? It's, it's an LRT. That is the project. Well, you know, quoting the Prime Minister himself, uh, rapid transit from uh, McMaster University to Eastgate Square, it sounds to me like it's an LRT. So wait a sec, Larry, just to interject here, could he say, uh, because he didn't really say the three letters, LRT, are are, are the people that are going to be, well, you know, that's just a rapid bus line between Mac and Eastgate. Well, and those are some of the details, obviously, that need to come forward. And council can, uh, I suppose, do whatever it thinks it's best. But to me, to my ears, um, you know, council has been advocating for a an LRT, uh, and they've been looking for government support uh, when things went off the rail with the province um, some quite some time ago. Now, uh, the federal representatives. Uh, Minister McKenna, former Hamiltonian as well, uh, pointed out that she wanted to be part of the solution. I think the advocacy on the part of the mayor, the Chamber of Commerce, and so many other uh, community groups, uh, there have been naysayers as well, but lots of community groups advocating for LRT. I've never heard anybody advocate uh, strongly with the other levels of government for anything but LRT, so I'd be shocked if they let this uh, opportunity uh, slip through their fingers, I think it's LRT. 
So obviously, uh, rough uh, a, a rough note today, and we're supposed to find out a little later today. Find out more a little later today, and then a formal announcement come Thursday. Uh, with considering where we are with the pandemic, and you know, obviously, it's it's about uh, you know reinjecting money into the economy, get things moving again, get people working again. The timing is right for this type of of infrastructure project more so than any any other time in the past. What happens now? Are we going to see things really start to move forward, or again, is there a period of time to get this all up and running again? Well, you know, government uh, moves slowly, as we know. Yeah. It doesn't, uh, you know, turn on a dime, and often that's good because it's it's uh, you know thoughtful processes that are required. But all the work has been done, and this is why I say it's got to be LRT because they have not done uh, EEA assessments and so on and laid out plans for bus rapid transit, but they have for LRT. This is shovel ready. And I've seen some speculation, at least on social media, among some that we're going to see shovels in the ground uh, fairly quickly. Um, now, I, uh, obviously, uh, the experts will have to weigh in on, uh, on a timeline on that. But this, I think, ramps it up. I think uh, we've gone from standstill to 100 kilometers an hour. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, as we're speaking, uh, there are discussions of uh, uh, happening in some quarters at City Hall, getting ready for the announcement and being able to react expeditiously. At least that would be my hope. At least that would be what I would do if uh, if um, it was my decision. Considering where we are with this global pandemic and what we've been going through for the last 60 weeks or what have you, um, how much of that is a factor in pushing this forward? If we hadn't had a pandemic, would we still be dillying? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and I think, you know, if, if there's a silver lining to this awful, awful episode, um, global episode, it's that um, uh, you need to stimulate the economy to get people working again. And I'm sure that factored into it for sure. So uh, is this discussion over? Is the, uh, you know, obviously the devil's in the details. We'll find out more Monday. But is the divisiveness over? Is this, a, do you uh, feel that we, we've, we've, we've crossed over a, a turning point here? There's no turning back now. We are all in. Scott, this is Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> Discussions are never over. We're happiest when we're fighting about something. However... Um, it, this this certainly is a good turn for those who support this project and see it not only, um, I mean, I live in Stony Creek, as people might know, uh, and, um, uh, you know, by the time the LRT is built, somebody will have to wheel me on it, perhaps, for an yeah. inaugural ride. But my grandchildren will be able to use it. Other people who live uh, closer to it will be able to use it. But for me, it's a project that will revitalize a part of the Hamilton scene that I grew up in, inner city Hamilton. It'll provide employment. It'll revitalize the road system. It'll do so many good things in terms of economic benefits that even those who may never use it will benefit because once you make a part of the city wealthier, and able to pay its own way in terms of 
um, taxes, contributions to taxes uh, and redevelopment, you're helping all of us. And I'm hoping that people will see it that way finally. Well said. Uh, Larry Deany with us, former mayor of Hamilton. And good news this morning coming out of the Prime Minister's News Conference that uh, Hamilton will get its rapid transit project from McMaster all the way to Eastgate Square. Uh, too bad there's a pandemic going on because I have a feeling there'd be a great party at City Hall right about now. <laughs> I agree with you on that. So let's uh, and- all at least uh, acknowledge uh, the the, the, uh, the very positive vibes that we're getting and hope that they materialize. All right. Thank you so much, Larry, and great to see you out in the street playing basketball on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right, Larry Dietti, former mayor of Hamilton. Thanks, Larry. Be well. All right, let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm just fine, thank you. Glad to be with you today. Uh, We want to talk about the Line 5 and how that is all of a sudden a problem for Ontario. Uh, But before we get that, your thoughts on uh, the Prime Minister this morning. I must admit, about quarter to 12, I fell off my chair when I heard the Prime Minister announce funding for four major uh, transportation projects, subway extensions and such, uh, for Toronto. And part of that package was a fifth deal, which uh, was also the rapid transit project in Hamilton. And he spelled out running from McMaster to, to Eastgate Square. Your thoughts on this news, Marvin? Well, uh, first, uh, you know, whether you like it or you don't like it, it looks like Hamilton's going to get its LRT, and it's the full LRT. It's not yeah. the shortened route that the province had sort of dangled in front of us a few months ago. Now, I, I don't mean to be a negative, Nelly. I always love to see the written details. You know, the devil is in the details. And I also now need to hear how the province is going to respond. Because the province had seemed to suggest that it was only prepared to fund X amount of LRT, not the full amount of LRT. Justin's announcement today has put that fat back in the fire. And I just need to hear Doug Ford confirm, well, if, the, if they're going to kick in this many dollars, I'll kick in the rest, and, and off we go. Uh, bad news, I suppose, is the construction. This is going to take three, four, five years to build and there will be a major disruption along the route. But it is seen as a project as, as we go to recover from COVID that's going to create employment, going to create good-paying jobs in the community, and part of what Justin had wanted as his infrastructure package. So I'm not completely surprised that it's happened. I My best guess before today had been bus rapid transit, not LRT. But um, whatever, this this is the key announcement. There will be celebrations at City Hall. Uh, what about the timing of this, and how does a coming out of a global pandemic stimulate this sort of thing? Because I, I was just talking to former Mayor Larry Diani, and I was questioning him as to, if there wasn't a pandemic, would we be hearing this announcement today? What about the timing of all of this? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a couple of things about the timing of all of this. I think you need to remember that Justin Trudeau is leading a minority government, which could fall at any time, uh, typically in Canadian history. A minority government lives about two years, and if you do the math, it was the fall of 2019. Take two years from there, you get to the fall of 2021, and that's you know where the smart money is that there might be an election this fall. So what do you do when you're that party facing that election? Well, you want to sprinkle some goodies around. You know, if you if you like this, you should reelect us because this is the kinds of things that we can do. And I think Justin very much has been plowing that field, that pre-election field, for some time. So I'm not completely shocked about this. Would this have happened if there wasn't a pandemic? Well, I'm going to say yes, because the election that created the minority government 
was in 2019 pre-pandemic, so I think he still would have been sprinkling goodies. Now, would he have been interested in spending this kind of money? You might remember in 2019, people were taking a strip off Justin Trudeau for running a deficit of horrors, you know, $18 billion. And now we're talking about running a deficit in this current year of around $150 billion. Um, no one no one seems to be that upset about it compared to where we were two years ago. So he has a unique window of opportunity here to make these kinds of announcements, and I think he's trying to take advantage of it. Will it make a difference in the long run? I just don't know. But to date, anyway, he seems very much like the Teflon prime minister. Whatever scandals he's had, he seems to have been able to shake them off, and he's riding high in the polls, so he's just going to keep doing what he's currently doing. Uh, what about opposition to this? Uh, obviously, city council been quite quiet on this. Uh, I'm not sure the, how much they were involved in this discussion. Uh, will we see the continued divisiveness, or is this, you know, obviously the devil's in the details, as you said, coming out on Thursday? But is this finally put to bed? I'm going to say yes. Uh, you know, I wouldn't want to be a city councillor where I have a provincial and a federal government prepared to invest two, three, four. $5 billion in a project and say, well, I'm not sure I want that in my community. I, You know, you keep your money. I, I just can't see them saying anything else but warmly embracing it and then trying to make the very best of it as we go. Um, I'm hoping that we're able to reassemble the team. You might remember when this was all canceled about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, the team was broken up, plans were shelved. Hopefully we can just blow the dust off those, reassemble a, a good team, and then reactivate everything. I'm not sure we will see any kind of a shovel in the ground in 2021, but if you play the timeline, start in 2022, maybe get sections of it open by 2025, 26, 27. It is a long-term project, but I think council will come on board, even even the detractors, now that the big check has been cut. All right, let's move on to uh, the discussion over Line 5. I, I still think a lot of Ontarians, Canadians, don't even know what this is, don't even know what it's about. And the funny thing is, I remember doing a simulcast show uh, with a host in Calgary, and, you know, they're asking uh, all kinds of questions of us in the East and such. And I remember her bringing up, and this was months ago, uh, like, are, are, are Ontarians upset about Line 5? I mean, are you realizing what's happening here? And, you know, I said to her, no, I, I don't think most Ontarians are, I think most Ontarians are oblivious to this and what is happening. Uh, but now, all of a sudden, the attention has turned to this. And I even heard uh, NDP leader Jugmit, uh, Jugmeet Singh say, uh, today that uh, he is for uh, keeping all of this open because we're simply not where we need to be and we need this energy in order to keep uh, people's homes uh, heated. Your thoughts that this is finally getting the attention of those of us that live here? Well, first, it, using your, your first comments, I'm not sure everyone understands this, so let me try to quickly explain. Yeah. Line 5 is a pipeline run by the Enbridge Corporation. It brings sweet light crude uh, across the Canadian-U.S. border. It stays just in Canada until you get to uh, basically Mackinac Island, which is a dividing line between uh, uh, Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. It then crosses from Canada into Michigan. It runs on Michigan land, and then it makes a, a, 
I guess that would be a right turn going east and crosses at Port Huron, Sarnia, to bring this sweet light crude to Sarnia. And that's where it gets refined into things like gasoline, jet fuel, all those sort of products. And it's also fair to say that as it starts to make that turn, there's a little side bend, and some of that sweet light crude is, is diverted to Michigan-based uh, refineries who do the exact same thing. They make gasoline, they make jet fuel, what have you, from it. And this pipeline has been in existence for the better part of 60 years. Now, Gretchen Whitmer, she is the governor of Michigan. Uh, I won't say she made it as a campaign promise, but because she's also an environmentalist, she expressed concerns not about the crossing at Port Huron-Sarnia, but at the crossing in the Mackinac Islands. And the, the pipeline goes underwater. And I guess it was maybe about four years ago that a boat... Uh, had had um, parked, for lack of a better term, in that area, dropped anchor and dented the pipeline. Didn't break the pipeline, nothing leaked out, but that was enough to send a little environmental scare through people. So several months ago, uh, she said, uh, you know, I think it's time for you to close that pipeline down. I'm not sure I'm comfortable anymore with the various easements that we've signed about this. And she picked a date, and that date is tomorrow to shut it all down. Well, this would have huge implications in Canada, especially in this area, because this is where the gasoline gets refined. This is where the jet fuel gets produced. And so Canadian government pushed back and said, well, can't we talk about something else? No, no, I want this shut down. I want this shut down. Enbridge has taken Michigan to court, and uh, the court case has not actually been heard. The judge said, can't the two of you just find some mediated way to sort this out? So officially... The government in Michigan and Enbridge are um, seeking mediation, trying to find some middle ground. Enbridge has proposed that the current pipeline, which just sits on the floor of the water there, be buried and that a tunnel be dug and so that it's put underneath all that. That means two things. One, it's not going to accidentally be broken by an anchor. And two, if there was a leak, it would be contained in that underground passageway. It wouldn't get into the water. Michigan seems to have been somewhat lukewarm to all this. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has called uh, President Biden on this, and they've had a chat. Uh, And today, what we've now had is union people weighing into this. You mentioned Jagmeet Singh, but union people in both Canada and the United States who are concerned, because if you shut this pipeline down, what about these jobs uh, in the Sarnia area? What about these jobs in Michigan and these refineries? These are unionized jobs. Where the, what are these people supposed to be doing? And then other people are concerned about, well, you know, what are we going to do for gasoline? What are we going to do for jet fuel? This is going to have a huge implication. Yes, there are alternatives. I can put it on train cars. I can put it on trucks. Um, you know, there, I can put it on boats and run it through the Great Lakes system. doesn't work that well in the winter months, but that's an alternative, at least for a while. But all of those are much more expensive than the pipeline we've got. So here's what I think is going to happen. Nothing. In other words, tomorrow they're going to keep pumping oil through this, still feeding those refineries. Enbridge has said, we're not going to break the law, but until the court orders us to stop, we're going to keep doing what we're doing, and we're going to keep talking to Michigan. And I think now it's very much, can you find an acceptable solution to everyone? I'm thinking there is so much pressure on Gretchen Whitmer, it's likely they will find some middle ground, but I can't tell you exactly what that'll look like.
Uh, is it too little too late? The fact that we've waited until the 11th hour. And if you're the prime minister and you're not interested in building pipelines or, uh, you know, you're against fossil fuel development, can you justify keeping these light, uh, these lines open? Uh, is this too little too late? Yeah. Well, I don't think it's too little too late. They have been working on this. You're going to have to trust me on this. Enbridge has had its eye on this for several months, and they have been working hard for several months trying to lobby everybody and anybody. Now, the union comments today might be a little too little too late, but the efforts that have been going on for months and months and months, they are very sincere, and they are very heartfelt in what they're trying to do. Um, What's not clear to me, because I'm not in Michigan and I'm not seeing Gretchen Whitmer, she's had a stormy uh, governorship for sure, including a potential death threat, you might remember, uh, during the Donald Trump presidency. Militia were going to move in and and whisk her away and maybe even execute her. So uh, I'm not just sure on her plate where this ranks as things that have to be done and have to be done her way. Usually, when it's this kind of infrastructure, a route is found and a compromise is made. Now, you asked about the prime minister who's trying to wear this environmental hat. What what he has tended to say is, I'm not in favor of building brand new pipelines in brand new spaces. So he got behind the Trans Mountain, which is a twinning of a pipeline, basically running a second pipeline right beside the first one. So you're not really taking new land out of service. Um, He's also supporting this because there's going to be an upgrade to a 65-year-old pipeline. Again, not new land coming out of this and perhaps a better solution at the end of the day. So I think what he's been trying to say is, I'm not trying to get you to stop using oil and gas today. We are going to transition, and we are going to transition probably over three or four decades, but we're not going to start today. So his argument is keep the status quo where it is, and then let's do this in slow, measured steps over the next three, four decades. Does this put more pressure on Canada to have an east-west pipeline? Well, that becomes a very interesting question. As a longer-term solution, um, I'm not sure anyone has been investigating a pipeline that would run north of Lake Superior and stay north, run just through Ontario and down to feed Sarnia. Um, uh, and I don't know what the cost of that would be and the timing of that. Clearly, if you shut down this pipeline and then say, I'm going to build an alternate route, we'd really be talking about a three-year, four-year construction cycle. Uh, that doesn't solve your problems immediately. So, um you know, uh, I, I think they would prefer as much as possible to use the existing route and let's fix your concerns where you have concerns so that we can keep using what has proven to be a fairly reliable pipeline in its history. The Line 5 pipeline has not had any major spill. Of course, that could all change this afternoon, but has not had one to date. And so it has a quite an enviable track record. Again, I'm not quite clear why Gretchen Whitmer drew the line in the sand for that line at this time. So this is off to court. Uh, Is this court case valid? Obviously, the judge wants them to work it out amongst themselves. But who does this favor? Is there more chance of one than the other winning? Well, uh, yes. So it it actually favors Michigan. Uh, It was Michigan who gave a waiver, the state of Michigan, who gave a waiver to run this pipeline on uh, Michigan land. They also gave this waiver, again, 65 years ago, to run this pipeline underwater. And so since it was their right to give, it is also their right to withdraw. 
and uh, you knew it would have to come up. But as well, Gretchen Whitmer has support from, I think it is 13 different groups of Native Americans who, who complain um, in 2020 that they were not properly consulted 65 years ago when these pipelines infringe on their territory. So, yes, shut it down, and then let's renegotiate everything from scratch uh, and make sure we're getting our proper compensation. So she does have allies on her side, and it is their right to withdraw. Having said that, uh, there is a, an agreement signed. I'm going to say it goes back to the Johnson administration, possibly the Nixon administration, which says that um, once these things are signed, they have validity. In other words, the, it's now up to the United States to stand behind these agreements rather than each individual state. That's why there's also appeals going to Washington on this and saying, well, what's the point in having these agreements if they're going to be abrogated at a moment's notice? So lots for the lawyers to sort out, lots of talking going on. I don't think there's going to be any change, but again, it is a symbol how a supply chain can be interrupted at a moment's notice and how there would be repercussions through the entire economy. But in your opinion, in the meantime, uh, as of tomorrow, the oil will continue to flow. Yeah, I, I think it will. I think uh, everyone's interested in making that happen in some way. And and uh, I, I think Gretchen Whitmer is, I don't think this is number one on her agenda, and I think she may be interested in some compromise. I don't know what that is. It may be, for instance, that Michigan gets a certain amount of first rights to the oil coming through the pipeline to guarantee those jobs in Michigan. I'm not sure. But good minds are working on this. It's just a, a hassle that maybe we didn't need to have, uh, but now we've got to make it go away. So does this problem change our outlook or, or our policy in any way? Uh, is there a way to prevent this from happening? Well, I, again, unfortunately, the answer is, is um, no. Um, these kinds of agreements where you seek concessions, so I want to run some a pipeline across your land, you and I sign them, and they have various clauses, and they can be terminated when I violate those clauses. So that's, you know, the one side of it, Enbridge has not violated any of the clauses. However, because it's your right to give me this, there are periodic times where these can be reviewed and renewed, or uh, these concessions can be withdrawn, and it is inevitable over time that people are going to say, well, maybe I'm not happy with the fee you're giving me, the payment. I want more money, or, mm, you know, I've mm. now thought about it, and that lake is, uh, I want you to go around that lake. So we do see this in these kinds of agreements periodically. Uh, we've just never had one where they said shut it down completely. Marvin Ryder with us, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University, talking about Enbridge's Line 5. Uh, Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Glad to be with you today. Here is today's daily commentary. As Canadians wonder when the fun will start, more and more provinces are increasing restrictions to deal with the rising variants of COVID-19's third wave that arrived before our vaccine. Ontario is in a stay-at-home order until May 20th, and many were hoping to see a lifting of restrictions at that time. However, despite an increase in the amount of vaccine coming into the country this month, the provincial government is signaling that health officials want everything to remain the same until new case counts drop below 1,000 a day and ICUs start to empty out. And although there are signs of leveling off, it is too early to ease up on the protocol, say experts. 
On the other side, as you can imagine, there is a very loud cry to open up from everyone who wants out or needs to make a living, and rightly so. They have had enough. However, even though most of southern Ontario has been in a lockdown for months, many who are now trashing the provincial government for opening up too early were the very ones who said follow the science and open up between each of the first two waves. The debate we are having now is no different than the opening debates of each of the first two waves. And until we get more vaccine into Canada and more vaccine into Canadian arms, it is a debate that has no winner. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, let's uh, talk about uh, China and their population growth, which uh, apparently is pretty close to zero. Now, you might remember uh, it wasn't too long ago, a few decades ago, uh, when China was concerned about its population and then said to its couples, uh, only one child, please. Uh, And unfortunately, what was picked was usually the boy. And then all of a sudden, there was a a vast amount of little Chinese girls available for adoption. And we saw that even in Canada, uh, even here. Uh, And quickly, China realized this, uh, you know, you you can't construct your population this way and pulled back on that. Now, uh, their concerns are that their population is not growing enough. To talk more about all of this, Charles Burton with a senior fellow with the Center for Advanced in Canada's interests abroad at the McDonald Laurie Institute and is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Good to hear from you, Scott. So is China growing or shrinking the population? It looks like it's going to be heading into a shrinking trend. There are just too many oldsters, and and I guess uh, Chinese couples not having enough unprotected sex is the bottom line. But, you know, more seriously, it's 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 partially due to industrialization you know in these kind of traditional societies where most people are involved in subsistence agriculture it's in the interest of families to have a lot of uh, children because they need boys to maintain the farm and to look after uh, the parents in their old age in the absence of any kind of social welfare so you know in those farming societies they tend to produce a lot of children then when you move into crowded cities where, you know, the, the apartment's expensive, the education for the children's expensive, the medical care is expensive, and people have no particular interest in, in uh, having a lot of children, then uh, you get the situation of um, the population not replacing itself and then this very uh, disturbing demographic imbalance where there just won't be enough young people to support the number of old people who um, aren't able to work anymore. So how does China's population situation compare to that of North America, Canada, and the United States? Well, for us, of course, you know, a lot of what we're able to do is to bring people in from other countries as immigrants. So, you know, that, that helps, uh, you know, the, the, the new immigrants coming in are, are helping to, to support my future pension when I get old. Um, mm-hmm. I think also there's more confidence here in Canada that you know that we that you will be able to get pensions and and medical care and uh you know we get uh good free education and so on which which gives people uh, less concern about having uh, having more children and we just have more space so that you know you're better able to accommodate uh the the kids so we we're not facing this kind of demographic uh time bomb but uh, you know China it's not simply because of their communism or simply because of their 
one-child policy. You see a similar issue in in other countries like um, Japan and South Korea, where they really have to figure out something to to solve it. And those kind of societies don't tend to have uh, a sort of friendly attitude towards bringing in uh, people of other languages and cultures and ethnicities to uh, to build their society. They just don't like to accept outsiders. So it's partially a problem of their own making. So uh, in that regard, uh, regarding immigration, is it that China doesn't accept a lot of immigrants into the country or immigrants don't want to move to China? They'd rather go to other destinations. Well, you know, if you look at how China treats its minority peoples, like the Uyghurs and the Tibetans, you know, just wouldn't uh, you just wouldn't feel that you'd be comfortable there. You know, the hostility of the regime to all forms of religious practice, for example, um, but I think in general, I hate to interrupt here, Charles, but isn't that racist? Yeah, uh, you know, it's a Be- and, and the reason that I'm saying that is because it seems that China is constantly accusing Canada of being racist whenever it says anything. Yet this is perhaps the most uh, obvious sign of racism uh, between either country is that they don't want immigrants coming in. It has a certain uh, fascistic element to it, you know, that our people are the superior people and we have a a destiny to dominate all the other peoples of the world. So the idea of sort of equal citizenship of any human being who who holds the passport just doesn't exist in a country like uh, like China. So, you know, we do have a a situation where maybe uh, people would like to move there as um, you know, because of economic opportunities, but that they would never really be accepted as uh, Chinese citizens, and you know, you don't have an immigration uh, department in the Chinese government because they really don't have any immigrants; they just have uh, temporary workers and at a very small scale from foreign countries. Uh, we certainly know and are hearing more that again, China feels it's superior and has the superior system is into world dominance. They're very open about that. Um, but if China was as successful as one would assume, why are there citizens coming here? Why are there not more immigrants going there if it's utopia? Yeah, I think that that's a you know a very valid point because of course most of the of the people who choose to uh, become Canadians here in Canada from China are people who have, uh, you know, been successful in China. They've got, they've got higher level skills that our country needs, educational skills or business skills. And when they come to Canada, they typically take an economic hit. You know, they're not able to achieve the same sort of um, status in uh, Canada as they enjoyed in their own country because of the language and cultural and other barriers. So the reason that they're coming here is because, you know, we offer a a very healthy society with equal opportunity for all, wonderful opportunities for their children to get good education, and I think that that people want to live in a country where you enjoy freedom of of, uh, expression, the ability to choose your own leaders, and uh, fair opportunity and lack of corruption on the part of government. I think that's why people come here. It's not not just because Canada is a wonderful country with terrific natural resources and great opportunities. It's because we just have a society which suits, you know, the nature of, of humanity much better. Hmm. Uh, you know, who, anybody who, anybody would want to live in Canada. It's a great, it's a great country.
Does China realize that? Does China realize that there are citizens who do want out? Oh, I mean, you know, you look at the Chinese leadership, uh, including Xi Jinping, who sent his uh, daughter to be educated in Harvard, or the number of senior leaders who who have their families um, here in Canada, of course they realize that, that a free and open society is a better place to raise your kids and to live. You know, I think that that... So why would they not want to create that kind of environment at home? Well, let me tell you. I mean, you know, I worked in the Canadian government, as you probably know, as a diplomat and mm-hmm. in government capacities, trying to spread the word on... You know, we had uh, human rights dialogues. We had programs where we trained judges. We had programs where we brought uh, Chinese policymakers to look at Canada thinking, well, you know, if they understood what we have here, they'd want it there. But the bottom line is that that country is dominated by the Chinese Communist Party, an entrenched elite who doesn't want to lose their position if they were subject to a free and fair election or subject to criticism by a free and open press. But, you know, the Chinese know know what's going on here. They know that situation in Canada is better than in the PRC, and they know that Taiwan is a successful democracy based on traditional Chinese norms. You know, but they don't want to... They don't want to admit that to their people. And all I can think of is Hong Kong. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's bizarre. So where does this leave China? How do you fix this with basically a zero uh, population growth? How does this change uh, their mandate of, of, of global success, of global yeah, I mean, dominance? That's the thing, you know, they... Clearly, the economy is going to be weakened um, by the demographic imbalance, and that will affect their ability to to do their global expansion in accordance with their plans. And I think it's unlikely that there's any measure that the Chinese government can take to encourage young people to start producing, you know, larger families, simply because um, people just don't trust these sorts of government initiatives because they they've seen the government go go backwards on on commitments time and time again so i i don't think that they're going to be able to square this circle either through um, incoming immigration or through somehow or other getting the birth rates up i i think that this is something that that's going to fester in the years ahead and cause a lot of difficulties um for for china's uh development as as time goes on Many have said for years, uh, China obviously uh, turning into an, ec- an economic powerhouse, and that in future decades it will be uh, it'll be uh, the world's largest uh, economy, largest control. Is that dominance guaranteed? Because I've heard many say that's not necessarily the case. Uh, you know, demographic things, and you know that can lead to instability and uh, and. Um economic decline you know and we just don't and this is dangerous stuff you know if you start getting into a situation where people don't feel that their future is secure then they will uh, start to look for alternatives and that could that could threaten the rule of the chinese communist party so we certainly remember when in china don't have kids just have one kid that's it and they were usually keeping the boys and sending the girls off for adoption it wasn't that long ago when that was the policy there now the policy is have more than one kid how does that how, how do people uh, accept that in china how, how do they react 
Well, of course, you know, in the earlier policy, there was a lot of selective abortion and, frankly, infanticide of uh, of baby yeah. girls because, in particular in the countryside, as I say, they need boys to, to look after the old people. They, the daughters, you know, look serve the families of their husbands in terms of, of Chinese cultural norms. So you did have a very tragic uh, situation there. Um, you know, I don't think that people are going to be uh, changing their way of life to have more children because the government tells them to do that. I just don't. Yeah. I just don't think it's something that people will respond to. You know, it's a very. What about applying? What about giving them incentive, financial incentive, to do this? Well, I'm sure that the government will try that. Um, but you, you know, the bottom line is that it's a country of highly polarized wealth. You know, there are 86 U.S. dollar billionaires in the Chinese Parliament, the National People's Congress. And the people who can afford larger housing in cities tend to be the super rich. Ordinary middle class people just can't uh, just can't afford, you know, a house that has several bedrooms and accommodations for children. And the society is not about to start to implement universal um, programs like uh, free education or free medical care or guaranteed pensions or all of those things that that help support our system and make us feel confident that we can have families and that uh, even if things start to go wrong, uh, the government will take care of us. In China, you just don't have that kind of uh, feeling of security, and therefore a lot of people choose to have no children or, or one at the most. So we remember uh, a few decades ago, 80s and 90s, when there was a one-child policy in China. And as I mentioned, uh, obviously the boys were preferred and then uh, the, the girls often put up for, for adoption. That also created a gender imbalance. Uh, that was the result of, of, of decades, a couple of decades of that policy. Now it's an overall numbers situation. So when you put two of those together each one will aggravate each other, will it not? Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of concern about, um, you know, men at the lowest level of, of society being unable to uh, to uh, marry because, mm-hmm. you know, the say the poorest peasant women will, will be taken by the medium peasant men and so on. So it's the guys at the, at the bottom of society are basic laborers and farmers who find that they cannot... Um, set up a family, which in Chinese cultural terms is, uh, you know, very, very humiliating. And there is concern that that could lead to uh, more kinds of gang behaviors and resentment on the part of these frustrated young men who who simply can't get what they believe they deserve, which is an opportunity to continue the family line through marriage. Um, and that, you know, that that's a destabilizing factor that you cannot uh, downplay. Um, and and you have seen some issues like that that the government has had difficulty controlling, but I, I think um, you know in in general uh, until the government um, makes the allocation of wealth in society fairer, so that people can enjoy decent housing and have assurance of access to education and medical care for their children, that this thing is not going to turn around, and to get that the Chinese Communist Party would really have to start to think in a much more democratic and uh, and egalitarian way than they think now. It's so ironic that the Marxists, you know, the former Marxists turn out to be the uh, the, the 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 strongest in in terms of creating a, a money elite and suppressing the aspirations of ordinary folks. 
We certainly know of China's ambitions, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, also conflict around the world, whether it's around COVID-19 or the two Michaels and such. How big of an issue is this in all of that? How, how big an issue is their population in all of this? Well, I think that, you know, the government would have to start focusing on how to maintain stability in in um, a situation where there's a large number of unproductive old people and a smaller number of, of, um, of working people who don't have children. So, you know, from that point of view, it does impact on everything. Um, one measure they might take would be to raise the age of retirement. You know, it's something that we've been talking about here in Canada. In China, women retire at age 55 and men at age 60. So it's conceivable that people could be working a bit longer, which would take some of the pressure off, but there's a lot of resistance to that. And, you know, frankly, a lot of people in China at age 55, women, are just not in good enough health to be able to continue to do manual labor or farming labor. And so expecting them to work on um, more years Mm. is probably not that realistic. And the life expectancy of these kind of people is not nearly as high as it is in a country like Canada. So, you know, they're really caught between a rock and a hard place, and I don't see the government engaging in any effective measures to address this demographic time bomb. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a while off, and maybe the government feels that by the time it comes home to roost, uh, they'll all be, uh, you know, up to hmm. marks, as they call it. Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow with the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at Macdonald-Laurier Institute, talking about China's population issues. Not too many, not enough. Charles, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care. Thanks so much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.